Hello. Just a quick warning, this episode contains quite graphic descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the next episode of Tudoriferous. <laughs> I was thrown then because I was, I was sensing and thinking, oh, I'm doing it in English now. I don't went to the rest in Cornish. The biographical podcast that examines lives in the Tudor era. Before we start, we've had a message from Slothinator, alias Umberto, from So You Think You Can Rule Persia podcast. Because in Philip Fair's episode, I said I didn't realise that the Holy Roman Emperor was elected. And I should have done, really, because I think it is the electorate, isn't it? Of, not electorate? Something like that. Of, of the area. But anyway, he says, hey, he says, hey, <laughs> I've been listening to the Philip the Fair episode and it's really good. So that's nice. Yeah. Paul Juana had a really tough time. I'm not sure if I'm late to the party, but I just wanted to say that, yes, the Holy Roman Empire was elective. It had been elective since nineteen since nineteen eighty three. Nine eight nine eighty three. But the procedure was formalized in thirteen fifty six. That early nine. Seven electors. Yeah. Oh. Four secular and three spiritual. The problem with this system is that once Maximilian's father Frederick was elected, the Habsburgs managed to manipulate and bribe their way into being elected every time until eighteen oh six when the Empire was dissolved. There were right. only two other non Habsburg emperors, but that was just because a woman was ruling Austria <laughs> and couldn't legally be emperor, so a few placeholders were needed. Although the results were always as expected, the Habsburgs got into serious debts for these elections, e.g. Charles V gave a banking family colonisation rights in the Americas to pay off his debts. Oh. So thank you, Umberto. That's clarifying. Yes, it. Yeah, I think you. I didn't realise it was elective because it's always the Habsburgs. Isn't yeah. It? So you sort of assume it automatically went to them, but nope, it didn't. They had to pay for it or they had to haggle for it. Wow. Maybe that's why Maximilian's always in debt. When we were talking about the Henry episodes, he was constantly getting money from Henry. <laughs> yes. I mean, they're all they're all in debt. That's why you've got these big banking families. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's in debt. So who actually had the money? Henry. Henry had it all. <laughs> oh, and just one more thing. We've been asked by a new podcast called Noblesse Oblige to give them a bit of a plug, which we're very happy to do. They are rating all the Nobel Prize winners. And uh, I've listened to the first one all about Alfred Nobel. It's very good. Worth a listen. And while we're about it, we might as well give a quick plug for two more Rexypods that have started recently. There's Tsar Power, obviously rating all the Tsars, and that's T-S-A-R. And also there is the Alexander Standard, and they're rating all the wannabe Alexanders. Also worth a listen. Anyway, I forgot to say who we were doing. I'm getting very slapdash at this. Yes, and we are episode 23. Okay. Today... Michael Joseph, also known as Michael Angoff, and Thomas Flamenc. So we're into the Cornish Rebellion. Okay. But 
first we have to do the quiz. Oh, God. <laughs> Quiz. See, you don't like it either. <laughs> that completely slipped my mind. It's not too bad. It's just that you you feel like you're going to sound like an idiot when you get them all wrong, mm-hmm. like I do. Especially when you haven't done it for yes, it's been quite a while since we did Edmund. Yes. Anyway, so okay. this is Edmund de la Pole. Mm-hmm. Question one. Why was Edmund so valuable to the Tudor pageantry? He was a good jouster. Yes. Is that it? That It has three correct answers. That's one of them. Um, he was a looker? <laughs> <laughs> he was flamboyantly chivalric. Uh, and he was a cousin of the queen. All three of those could have been correct. Good job. Question two. What was Edmund indicted for that made him first flee England? Murder. Yes. Murder, yes. Although he said it's not murder if they're not important. Ah, that was my second question. Why did he object to the indictment? (laughs) It was just a commoner. Perfect. It doesn't count. (laughs) In Edmund's negotiations with Henry, what made us think he was deluded? Well, I know towards the end, he was in prison and he was still negotiating, as he seemed to think, from a vantage point of some sort of power. Yes. <laughs> he, th- he thought he had something to trade and he didn't have anything to trade. You're in prison. You've got nothing. Everything's been taken. Why are you doing this? Yes. All right. I'll come back if I can have the dukedom and the money and the land. Yes. <laughs> That's my final word. <laughs> oh, man. What was it, final question, what was it in Edmund's writing that was such a struggle for me to read? Oh, he wrote in a broad Norfolk accent. Yes, he phonetically wrote his accent. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's going to haunt me. I felt so confident and so happy. I was like, yeah, I get to read letters. This is awesome. Start reading it. What is this? (laughs) Especially if you've no idea what a Norfolk accent sounds like. Not at all. And it, it, I had been going with the idea, the reason I was good at it was because of the Paston letters. But mm. the Paston letters are more along a Londoner accent, which is how everything, all of the court rules and everything were written. So in my head, like now, everybody uses the same spelling. <laughs> yeah, no. Yes. <laughs> well done. Five out of five. And you were Ooh. worried. <laughs> That is enough of that. Let's crack on. Right, let's go to Cornwall. Why not? It's lovely. Come with me, if you will, to Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel. Quote, He, meaning Thomas Cromwell, who always calls him he, okay. remembers the day they heard the Cornish army was coming. He was, what, 12? The next few days they worked till they were ready to drop. Walter, that's his dad, undertook body armour for his friends, and he to put an edge on anything that can cut, tear, lacerate rebel flesh. The men of Putney have no sympathy with these heathens. They pay their taxes. Why not the Cornish? The women are afraid that the Cornishmen will outrage their honour. Our priest says they only do it to their sisters, he says. So you'll be all right, I'll bet. Oh my God, he he did not. A priest did not say that. 
I should think priests say lots of things they oughtn't know. <sighs> that week, rumours proliferate. The Cornishmen work underground so their faces are black. They're half blind so you can catch them in a net. <laughs> the king will give you a shilling for each you catch. Two shillings if it's a big one. Just how big are they? Because they can shoot arrows a yard long. His sister, Bet, says, Another thing those Cornish have got. They've got a giant called Bolster, who's in love with St Agnes, and he follows her around, and the Cornish bear her image on their flags, and so he's coming up to London after them. Unquote. I remember that there was a, a bit in <laughs> Wolf Hall all about the panic that was about the Cornishman coming. That's insane. In my head, I guess in most people's head, nations are a nation, but England isn't a nation yet. They still think of them as disparate parts. Cornwall is one area. Wales is another area. Scotland, well, Scotland's a different country, but the Yorkists mm. are a different area. And they, they are just as prejudiced against each other as they are to oh, other countries. Yes. More so, I would think, because you've got enough in common. Like civil wars are always more vicious, aren't they? Yes, Because you've got are. enough in common to make it like that. Yeah. Is that what makes civil mm. wars the most vicious? I don't know. We're not we're not going to get to the Stuarts for a while, <laughs> like we originally <laughs> thought. Oh, in seven years, yes. we'll switch to the, the Stuarts. Yeah. Um, I'll be 80 and still doing this. <laughs> <laughs> that puts me well out of range. <laughs> so panic in London when they hear the Cornish are coming and they're luring a giant along with them. A real giant? I, I was thinking just a very large man. Are they saying an actual like fairy tale giant? It's a fairy tale giant. I'll tell you the story of that later. In um, I think it's martyrdom. I've got this. I've got the story okay. of Bolster the giant. <laughs> so who were these two people who were causing so much panic? We've got Michael Angoff, and his real name was Michael Joseph. Angoff means smith, and that's what he was. He was a blacksmith. Oh, okay. Angove is still a, quite a common surname in Cornwall, apparently, and that's similar to the name Smith. Mm. He was enormously strong, apparently, even for a blacksmith. But you think, well, strength goes with legends, really, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it does. <laughs> and he had a stout heart, which also goes with legends. But if you're a blacksmith, mm. you would think they would have a stout heart. <laughs> it's yeah. been working hard for years. <laughs> At least one historian has taken that to mean that he was a bit mouthy. Oh. You know, loudly complaining at every slight. But I think that was probably just a supposition to explain why he should have been chosen above all others to lead them. I mean, he's just a blacksmith. Right. But, mm. but we did learn, well, did we even say this on the podcast? I'm starting to lose track of what we've said. I don't know whether we say it on or off. In the Tudor period, Why? blacksmiths were minor nobility of any village mm. because they were the source of all the tools. So in their scale of who is important, the blacksmith was actually above a mason, above carpentry, above any kind of tradesperson, because without the blacksmith, you didn't have anything you could work with. So they actually had sort of a... So he was the top of the... Yeah. The pinnacle of the... the yeah. yeah. When you're in a time period where absolutely everybody has a certain place, everything becomes stratified. Even the types of farmers became stratified. The size of your farm, whether or not you leased or owned, also stratified you in, um, oh, what is that? Precedence. Mm. So, yeah. And craftsmen as well. We discovered that goldsmiths are at the top. Yes. Because they mess, with, you know, mess around with gold. I mean, it's, yeah. you've got to be trustworthy. Yeah. Michael Joseph came from St. Cavern 
on the or Caverne on the lizard. I went all French then. He came from Saint Saint Caverne on the Lizard Peninsula in Cornwall, and that's pretty much all that's known of his origins, except that there is or was an example of his smithing on the church door at Hallwood near Biddeford in Devon. At least there was in Francis Bacon's time, a century later. Okay. Can you explain where Cornwall is in England for our non-British listeners, UK listeners? Yeah, Cornwall is right at the bottom on the left. It's the southerly, southernmost point of mainland Britain. Right. And the Lizard is the southernmost point of Cornwall. Okay. And it's called the Lizard after the Cornish for High Court. So it's nothing to do with lizards. Really? And also, it's an Ophiolite. And that is... Do you remember that from your geology? It's normally, if an oceanic plate hits a continental plate, it gets sucked down and under. Yes. And it goes back into the, into the mantle yes. or the crust, and it sort of gets mixed up, ready for next time. Yes. But on certain places, this, the oceanic plate rides up over the top of the continental plate. Yes. And this is what's happened at the lizard. Okay. So it's an ophiolite, so you can find really interesting rocks there. Mm-hmm. You can find minerals which are stable at pressures and the temperatures of the crust. And when they come in contact with water, they get hydrothermal metamorphism and it creates things like serpentine and lovely stuff like that. So if you're interested in geology, go to the Lizard Peninsula. Anyway, that was a little sidetrack. Thomas (laughs) Flamank. Who knew you'd learn geology (laughs) on a history podcast? But it is important because we'll be coming to, if we do get to the Stuarts, we'll be starting to talk about the fossilised remains that were found by female people. Ah, yes, Mm -hmm. little Miss Anning. Mm. Mm -hmm. Not that far from here. Thomas Flamanck, he joined the march at Bodmin, and he was a very different character. His father was a landowner and a tax collector. In fact, he was one of the five men given the task of collecting the very tax which sparked the revolt. He or his father? His father. His father was. So he's going against his own father? Yes. Well, we don't know whether it was a sort of father-son thing or whether he just thought, you know, that's not fair. <laughs> I'm not putting up with yeah. this. <laughs> but he was, a, he, was, he was a lawyer and he practised in London. So he was quite a different character to Michael Joseph. Right. There were other leaders from other parts of Cornwall, but these two seem to have been accepted as the men to lead the march to London. So you've got one that's considered well-educated and one that's considered high up in the trades. Interesting. Yeah, one would have been intimidating because he was intelligent, and the other one would have been intimidating because he was a big lad. Yeah. It was a march to London rather than a march on London. Certainly at this point, we can decide later what happened to change this and whose fault it was. By that you mean a peaceful, it was a peaceful march? Just a march right. to Protest. the town of London. Okay. Yes. As far as we can tell from what sources there are, the plan was just to go to London to explain to the king why Cornishmen shouldn't pay this tax. And that his underlings, Cardinal Morton and Sir Reginald Bray, were to blame for this uprising. I don't doubt that. <laughs> yes. Well, that's all right. That'd be okay. Won't you just pop up and have a little chat with Henry? Yeah. And he just says, oh, you've got a point there. Well, no more taxes for you. Yes, you're fine. Yes. Well, we'll see. <laughs> but this was a sensible move on Flamanc's part because to criticise the king himself would have been treason. So it's much safer to go after his men. Right. And in fact, everybody does that, yes. don't they? Perkin uh, criticised the men. And because people very rarely criticise monarchs. It's much safer to say he was badly advised, I think. Flamanc told his followers that they should not damage any creature, which is nice. Mm-hmm. 
But as Francis Bacon said, it was, quote, as if he could tell how to make a rebellion and never break the peace. Because Bacon, I think, could see that if you're leading thousands of people, you can't always be responsible for what they all do. No. I mean, you know this from protest marches and things. Some, some people go home thinking, well, that was nice, and then discover, look at it on the news and discover that apparently they were a violent mob. Yes. <laughs> and it only takes one or two just to do it something does. bad that then amps up other people. Yeah. Well, this seems to be what's the case. I mean, it was an entirely peaceful march, apart from one incident we'll come to later. Apart from that, it was miraculously peaceful until they reached London and then it all kicked off. But the London Chronicle said, This was their outward colour. What their inward intent was, God knoweth. But what have ensued of like business as evident as by Jack Straw, Jack Cade and others. Why do I recognise Jack Cade? They they both did sort of peasant rebellions. Yes. And I presume they meant by this that during the Cade Revolt, the, the peasants claimed that their intentions were peaceful. But once they reached London, they started looting the place. Yeah until they were driven out by Londoners. So you can see why they were worried. Yeah. And they didn't have a giant. No. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I can't believe they said that. Every time we think we're getting closer to rational thought, something pops well, up like having that. having said that, I didn't come across anything about the giant in any of my researches. Oh, okay. So I think, I think Hilary Mantel might have heard the story and sort of put it in. I mean, she's a novelist, so she's allowed to do that mm -hmm. sort of thing. <laughs> Why do the Cornishmen think they should be exempt from the tax? Well, part of it was personal. There was huge resentment against the actions of Sir John Obey. He was the provost of Glasney College in Penryn and the tax collector for the area. The poor were meant to be exempted from paying tax, but some collectors were severe, and Sir John Obey was particularly so. And this zealousness by him might have been the reason that those in St. Cavern rose first. Sometimes it just takes one yeah. job's worth, doesn't it? I know of a bit of a legend about this, that apparently what sparked it off for Michael was that the tax collector, because he had nothing left to give them, was going to take his anvil, which meant he could no longer work. I didn't come across that at okay. all. Okay. Oh, Excellent. That was a legend. It's not actually written down in any history. Mm. I just remember reading a legend about the Cornish rebellions that that's what originally sparked it off. It makes sense. I mean, that would be extremely zealous, wouldn't it? Yeah, you'd just ruin this guy's livelihood. He'd never be able to pay mm. you tax again. He was going to starve and so would his family. But again, legend. I didn't find that anywhere historically. Mm. Well, the second reason was that they didn't see the war in Scotland the reason for the tax was anything to do with them. Too far away. They, they could hardly live further away from Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> Just to recap, Perkin had been welcomed by James IV of Scotland, and the two of them had already invaded England once. And that was the time when Perkin said he came in peace. James and his Scottish troops and his German mercenaries immediately started looting and slaughtering. Yeah. And Perkin burst into tears and <laughs> ran back to Edinburgh. <laughs> and I don't blame him, really. Henry was keen that James shouldn't be able to do that again, and so he petitioned Parliament to provide him with the money to raise an army against James and Perkin. In January 1497, the English Parliament had voted through a tax of two-fifths and two-tenths complete to be paid in May and November, and then a further payment of £120,000. 
to explain, I had to look look up what this two two fifths and two tenths was malarkey was. Mm-hmm. This was the lay subsidy standardized at one fifth and one tenth, depending on whether you're a city dweller or whether you lived in the country, of the value of movable personal goods. So that does sound as if an anvil might would, have been taken. I mean, it's not very movable, no. but it's movable. Yeah. I can't believe they taxed movable goods. Mm. I suppose you literally have to take take them back with you, don't you? Yeah. You literally have to pile them on a cart and take them. Well, I, mm. okay, in my head I was thinking that's silly, but it I guess it isn't because the majority of the peasantry didn't own land. So they couldn't do a land tax or a house tax. Because they were, and they wouldn't have had m- actual money either. Yeah, so you'd have to specifically take goods and then sell them mm. on to get money. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Mm. Somehow that seems worse than paying money into it. Really does, it? especially Actually taking your stuff. Yeah, like you don't need that hoe because you're just hoeing the land every single day. So we'll take the hoe. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a huge imposition, isn't it? Yes, one tenth of your stuff. For a battle up in the north some, somewhere against someone you've barely heard of. Yes, you don't need that kitchen table. Thank you for the kitchen table. Weird. Usually the poor were exempt from the tax, but it's not necessarily the case this time. Because they needed all the money they could get. Yeah, you notice the word lay as in the lay subsidy. Yes. Which implies that the clergy would be exempt from taxes, but as we'll see later, this was not the case either. Really? Mm. Okay. That's surprising. Flamenc argued that the extra money should be raised by a scootage levy on the nobility of the northernmost counties. Mm-hmm. And scootage was the money that a vassal paid to his lord in lieu of military service. Yes. So I don't want to go. Don't want to go to war. I've got a farm to run. I'll give you money for mercenaries. Mm. Yeah. But if an army was to march from the south to fight the Scots, surely the wealthier families that lived near the Scottish border and would benefit from the war, should foot the bill. Makes sense. I mean, what does it matter to someone living in St Ives whether Berwick is English or Scottish? Yes. I don't know. I guess that's, again, a nationality, the lack of nationality. Now, if they're hitting anything in your country, the whole country would, would rise up and help. Mm. But be, at this point, because they are such disparate parts, well, no, they're a different people. I don't want to help them. Cornwall has always been something a bit separate as well. Oh, okay. I mean, they've still got their own language, for instance. Right. As we demonstrated yes. so, so fluently this <laughs> I'm year. sorry. I did my best. <laughs> <laughs> Equally, and possibly more importantly, Cornwall was unique in that it had its own parliament and laws. Right. I mean, it's sort of, sort of unique. I actually covered Dartmouth in Devon as well. And this was known as the Stannery Parliament, and it was granted in 1305 by Edward I. Oh, see, and I thought it had fallen out of use already. No. Oh, I missed the date. Okay. These laws were in relation to tin coinage, a tax payable to the crown on smelted tin, and specifically granted immunity to the tinners from the other courts of England, quote, for all pleas arising within the said stannaries, except pleas of land, life, and limb. So Break that down. I suppose it's... <laughs> What does that mean? <laughs> they could deal with things in their own court. They didn't have to go to an, an English court unless it was something vital, land, life, or limb. It covers right. quite all the big stuff, doesn't yes. it? So I suppose if you've got some dispute or... You've murdered a commoner. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who, who gives a damn? Yes. 
and this could even overrule Westminster laws. Later, in 1337, Edward III recognised Cornwall as one of the, quote, remarkable places in our kingdom. And I think he meant it was had its own quality. Okay. It's a, it already had its own parliament, so it was it was quite a separate area. It wasn't just saying it's a lovely place, yes. which it is. Yes. But, and he made his son, yet another Edward, Duke of Cornwall. And that's a link with the monarchy that still exists, yes. and that's why it's called the Duchy of Cornwall, and Prince Charles is the present Duke of Cornwall. Yes. And that's why you get those overpriced biscuits that Charles makes, <laughs> the, the Duchy biscuits. <laughs> I don't think it makes them himself. (laughs) As we saw with the grand privilege in the Low Countries, these institutions become enormously important to the people who benefit from them. Yes. In Elizabeth's reign, the Stannery Parliament convened under Walter Raleigh presiding when Cornwall was granted weapons by the English Parliament against the Spanish attack. Yes. So although it no longer convenes... The fact that the 1305 Charter was never revoked means that some believe that Cornwall still has these rights. So, really? Yeah. Well, there's not a lot much tin smelting goes on these days. See, and I thought that was formally removed. I didn't realise it was still going. Hmm. I don't know anybody's tried, you know, tried in court to get their rights, but... Uh, and it's, incidentally, just to show how important tin used to be to Cornwall, it's thought... Although, admittedly, it's not definite. Wasn't it their main resource was tin, the tin Yes, mines? but also Britain got Britain got its name from the Latin word for tin. Yes. So, yeah, the Romans just thought, named it that place where they get tin, tin really. <laughs> <laughs> As we said in Philip the Fair's episode, you would mess with these institutions at your peril. In 1496, Henry introduced changes to the Stanley system. Of course he did. The Cornish either didn't accept the changes, or possibly some people inadvertently broke the law through not understanding or knowing about these changes. Yes, because communication wasn't very reliable at this point. But that did mean then that Henry then could suspend the Stannery Parliament completely. Really? And the tin miners and smelters lost their rights, including those concerned with taxation. And then just the following year... Henry clobbered them with a tax to raise an army against the Scots. Now I'd have gotten rid of it. Give me money. Yes. (laughs) Now, can that have been a coincidence? No, 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 no. I wonder if he came up with that himself or if Reginald Bray was the one who decided on that. Reginald Bray, if we remember from the Dudley and Empson episode, was their precursor, who was a little bit moralistic compared to them. But we won't know that. Entirely until we actually get to him. We have not pulled him yeah, out, we've of got the, a... out of the box yet. No, only your cat's got them out of the box so far. <laughs> I, I now have them separated like you suggested. So I have a bag of them somewhere <laughs> and I just keep that box full. And Jason finds them all over the house. But he gets so excited and has such a good time with them. We're not pulling them away from him. He can just have that. You're talking about the cat, the cat. now. Yes, not, not, Jason. not the husband. <laughs> Oh, he gets so excited, I can't make myself <laughs> Oh, man. So, 1497, about 6,000 Cornishmen set out from Bodmin. And they marched across Cornwall and then crossed the River Tamar over the Polson Bridge. That's a good number of people, people. as they went. Well, by the time they entered Devon, there were 15,000. Wow. Wow. And when they got to Exeter, they were expecting to be able to walk straight through. 
but the gates were closed to them. The mayor of Exeter, John Atwell, <gasps> called upon the local gentry, including the Earl of Devon, Edward Courtney, to protect the city. Apparently most of the gentry weren't that keen to get involved, although Courtney himself was obviously up for it because in the receiver's accounts for Exeter of that year, it includes an entry for the cost of men riding with the Earl of Devon against Michael Joseph and his fellow rebels. Oh, so they were reimbursed for their money. That might have been why nobody wanted to get in there. They didn't want to spend the money. Quite possibly. Maybe they didn't really see them as much of a threat. Yeah, they're just peasants. I mean, they're only passing through anyway. I mean, they're on the way to London. Yes. They probably thought, yep, keep walking. Yeah, you can walking. go around the city. You don't have to go through. Well... A compromise was made between Flamanc and Joseph and the mayor that the leaders of the march could go through the city, but the rest of the men would have to walk round. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, I thought it was a bit pointless. Why didn't they all yeah, walk round? Why don't you just... I suppose they were making a point, weren't they? Probably. But apparently they shouted abuse at the mayor as they walked past. Oh. <laughs> so perhaps, perhaps that's why they wanted to walk through. <laughs> so up until they reached Taunton, there were no incidents, as Flamanc had said there shouldn't be. However, when they reached Taunton, they killed and dismembered a provost. Oh, Anyway, on to Wells. What was it that he did that got them going? I don't know. Maybe he know. threw abuse back. Well, he was called Provost Perrin, and he was a commissioner who collected the tax. Ah, that might have just been strange, the reason. The, the, <laughs> well, the dismembering of a provost isn't mentioned in any of the histories of Taunton I read, and I must admit, I did plan to go to Taunton. It's only ten miles away. Ooh, and look at the records. And... And, well, look at the records and go to the museum and see if they've got any... Int- but I must admit, I just didn't get the time. Oh. And it's awfully hot today. That is so. the one thing that makes me jealous during this podcast, is you were there. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, there's a church here. I wonder if they have records online. No, no, none of them do. You know they have the <laughs> records, but they don't put them online. You have to actually oh, go in to read them. Yeah, I should have done. But time sort of crept away, and then suddenly we're recording and... Yeah. <laughs> Most people, I don't think, realize how much time it takes to put these things together. <laughs> Francis Bacon just says, The people, upon these seditious instigations, did arm, most of them with bows and arrows and bills, and such other weapons of rude and country people, and forthwith, under the command of their leader, which in such cases is ever at pleasure, marched out of Cornwall through Devonshire to Taunton in Somerset without any slaughter, violence or spoil of the country. So, so far peaceful. Unquote. Yeah, and that's it. He doesn't tells us there was no slaughter other than in Taunton. Other than but he that. doesn't mention that there was there was a horrific murder in Taunton. Oh my goodness! You know, it's funny. You think about it, and an army with swords is an army with swords. But people with like bill hooks and everything seem a lot I scarier. I would be a bit wary of someone with a bill hook. <laughs> <laughs> they can be very sharp. Yes, they can, <laughs> and all different shapes depending on where you are. And these are people who. But grown up using yes, them. Yes, so. they are very efficient yeah. with them. There's confusion about who whom they dismembered as well. I mean, one source says Provost Perrin, but the other one says our old friend Provost Obi of Glasney College. Oh, but then what would he be doing in Taunton? So, oh, there's a strange lack of information given that somebody's died. It's quite, it's quite a <laughs> it's quite a momentous occasion. Yes. I'd have thought. Anyway, after Taunton, they reached the lovely city of Wells, where the only nobleman to commit himself to the uprising joined them. James Touche, Lord Audley. Really, Touche? <laughs> Touche. <laughs> I should imagine it's Touche, and not it could be Touchet, I suppose, but I should think I'll go with Touche. 
We talked about him before, and we were wondering what made him side with a bunch of what he would presumably have seen as peasants. Oh, right. I remember that conversation. Was it that he saw the valid- validity in their cause and felt that he could use his noble status to give them support? Mm-hmm. Was he a closet Marxist? Or <laughs> but um, no, it wasn't that. Money? It was the old story. He was another William Stanley. He felt he hadn't been rewarded ah. enough by Henry and so was rising against him for his own reasons. His family had been Yorkist, and they had prospered under Edward IV and Richard III. When Audley was a child, he'd been made Knight Bachelor by Edward IV. But once Henry was on the throne, the Touchés were no longer top dogs. James Touché was given the baronetcy on the death of his father, but not enough for him, apparently. Yeah, of course not. The entitlement. <laughs> the entitlement. Yes. Here. But they, they seem to hit a glass ceiling, the Yorkists, don't they? Henry lets them have a certain amount. Yes. And then... Just stops them sinks. all. Nope. Yeah, there you go. People of my own. Audley had accompanied Henry to France in 1492, but that might be another reason for his disaffection, because Henry came out of it with a nice little nest egg. Yes. That, which kept him going for years. Yes, he did. But Audley was probably out of pocket. And never got paid because Henry didn't really pay for that because that was expected of you. Yes. In 1496, he was compelled to contribute £200 as part of a bond guaranteeing the loyalty of another Yorkist, the Marquis of Dorset, and that's Thomas Thomas Gray, Gray. the son of Elizabeth Woodville and her first husband. Yes. We got him on our list. I'm quite looking forward to him because he's one of these people that bounce up from time to time and do something a bit weird and then disappear again. Yes. Oh, that was interesting. Where did he go? So we'll be able to put all the bits together. Audley was then called upon to collect the taxes and provide a hundred men for Henry's Scottish campaign. But I still wonder what could still possibly be in it for Audley to join this bunch of ragtag Cornishmen. Yes, what did he think he was getting? Because he wasn't joining with other noblemen. He wasn't he sort no. of a one-off. Yes, we'll see. There was at least one more who was going to, but he was the only one who did. Right. We were confused about John de la Pole Jr.'s motives, but at least we could see that it was in his interest to follow Lambert Simnel, if only up to a point. Yes, and then... <laughs> the point being probably the point of the end of a sword. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kick him out and be like, no, <laughs> mine, thank you. So that, there was something there de la Pole could take over, but this march wasn't attempting to overthrow the king. No. It was quite the opposite. Yes, it was a peaceful march just to remove taxing. Yes. So far. Well, if we say peaceful after we talked about a murder, it was <laughs> yes. supposed to be peaceful. <laughs> they did a, light, a bit of light dismembering when they got to talk. Oh, gross. <laughs> chop, chop. <laughs> <laughs> I must go to talk and find out exactly where it was done as well. There's probably a car park or something now. <laughs> you might find us, there's a an epilogue to this this one I actually finally get to Taunton it's only 10 miles away but I never go that would be awesome (laughs) and last week on (laughs) I I could take my phone I could do a film of of where it is yes so how could Audley possibly benefit if the Cornishmen got what they wanted Audley would still be suspect for having sided with them and if they didn't get what they wanted which spoiler they don't (laughs) Audley could find himself in a very nasty position which he does Indeed he does, yes. Indeed he does. And there seems to be no benefit for him either way. However, he may have been reluctant to raise taxes and troops in the area, since he may have a hidden agenda, which could make all this clear. 
because they, everybody we've come across so far has a hidden agenda, apart from poor little Edward in the tower. <laughs> it seems he was a supporter of Perkin Warbeck against the king. Oh. But I don't know how much he was actually in favour of Perkin. It may have been like many others. He was just against the king. Yes. And by joining the Cornishmen, he was helping divert Henry's troops away from Perkin. And by not raising the taxes, he was diminishing the amount of money available to the king to raise troops. Got it. I mean, it seems quite a convoluted way. I'm just going to bring these Cornishmen up. And I just wonder if he he heard about the the march and thought, ah, I could use this. The other the other possibility is that he was in it with maybe Flamanc. Right. Right from the beginning. But that just seems, would Flamanc really have brought 15,000 Cornishmen like lambs to slaughter just for the purpose of giving Henry something else to think about? It just seems unlikely. So I think that Audley must have Is it thought... unlikely though? Because we do know that they did not value peasant lives at all. It just seems... Odd. I can't imagine Audley and Flamanc getting together and saying, right, okay, you bring as many Cornishmen up from Bogmin as you can find, and I'll join you at Wells, yeah. and then we'll go up to London, and they'll have to get the, get the troops to come and fight us. It just seems, it seems more likely that Audley heard about the march and thought, right, I know what I can do. Yeah. This this is going to be great, he thought. Yeah. This is going to be brilliant. Less a conspiracy and more just one person taking action. Mm. Yeah. That's my feeling yeah. for it. It just seems too far-fetched. <sighs> Maybe not, because we, I mean, we've come across some bizarre intrigue before, haven't we? Yes, we have. And that's why we've got this factor intrigue, because there's so much of it about. Yes. Hmm. He was, it seems he was fighting a renegade action in Perkin's campaign. But I wondered, did Perkin ask him to do this? Did he know he was doing Probably this? Probably not. Did Perkin just... didn't seem to know yeah. anything. <laughs> well, I mean, per- per- Perkin's backers. But at least Audley had military experience, which is more than the rest of them. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After Wells, they marched to Salisbury. And then they decided to make a detour to Kent, which is a hell of a detour. Having heard that they were usually up for a bit of insurrection. Okay. But as we know, in 1495, they had sided with the king against Perkin when they massacred his troops on the beach and lured them there with the promise of free beer. Yeah. (laughs) Free beer, I'm going. (laughs) (laughs) They showed... Free beer, come on. (laughs) Who wouldn't? (laughs) They showed no signs of wanting to join the Cornishmen. In fact, they stood against them. Which must have been a huge disappointment to Flamanc and Joseph, and it was definitely a huge disappointment to the rest of the Cornishmen too, because Francis Bacon reports there was an exodus from the Cornish army following this, if it's right to call it an army, which it wasn't really. And apparently their numbers went down to nine or ten thousand. But I thought, what do these people do? Did you you just walk home? I mean, they're in Kent. You can't get much further between Kent and Cornwall. Yeah, They must have just Walked away. They would have to. Well, they wouldn't. They would have walked there. I would assume they would mm. remember how to walk home. And if they're leaving in such large groups, it would be safety in numbers. It would, although presumably them leaving in large groups, other the rest of them might sort of detain them and say, "You're not going anywhere. Right. You're not leaving us in the lurch." I don't know. I just I don't know either. It just said they left. They left. So that was all. All the information. I thought 
What do you do in those circumstances? I don't Just think, know. Right, I'm going home. I'm going to walk the hundreds and hundreds of miles back again. Yes. And I always wonder, especially with peasant revolts, okay, you are in some years desperately living hand to mouth. And you've just left for an extended time period. You've just reduced your ability to provide food for yourself and your family. How do you recover that? Yes. And who's doing the farming while you're... You're gone. Out wandering around the countryside. Yes. So it just showed... I mean, these people were terrifically brave. Yeah. Just heading off, leaving their farms. Yeah, it wasn't... Or they were really miserable at home. I don't know. There must be some people who thought, yeah, I'm... I'm getting away from this woman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> do we have any word on if any women went? Because in some peaceful marches, we do have records of women being part they of the They did. Party. I can tell you, there were 69 of them. We know there. exact numbers of how many women were 69, there? yes. 69 of them and several priests. Really? Hmm. Which is nice to know that their souls are being yeah cared for at the same well. time. So yes. then the question is: Are they actually part of the protesting, or are they camp followers? Because there were some women that would go to do the laundry and to create the food and do that kind of thing. Surprisingly enough, they did continue along. And then, of course, there were the women of ill repute that would sometimes follow along in a campaign. Seems less likely in this. I mean, if they mentioned the numbers. That- Yes. Yeah. We we know that that happened with Charles VIII's army. Yes. We know <laughs> We're back to syphilis. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. It does seem unlikely. If you're marching up, I don't know, maybe I'm being naive, but you're marching up from Cornwall. It's going to be a very rural march. Yeah. Apart from going through Exeter and Taunton. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean that there weren't people in. Once ladies in Taunton and Exeter who thought this is going to be a better but better earner than staying here. I don't know. I don't know either. And I don't know why we know there's 69. Right. No more, no more, no less. Unless the fact was, was they were so unusual because they actually were part of the rebellion. That's what makes me think mm. that they were carrying their own weapons. Because mm. the priests were there as part of the rebellion as well. Yeah. So. Mm. Apparently, Henry was surprised that the Cornishmen had made it so far so quickly. Polydor Virgil wrote, quote, When the news of the Cornish rising reached Henry, he was completely taken by surprise and greatly alarmed, since he found himself being threatened by attack on two fronts at the same time, yes. by a foreign war and by, and by a civil war. The danger on either front seemed equally menacing. For some time, he could not make up his mind about which of them to deal with first, unquote. Right. Yeah, because he did not have enough men to split his army, so he would have to do one and then the other. Mm. Hmm. And Bernard Andre had no opinion about this at all. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Good old Bernard. Ever since I did the Polydor Virgil episode, I no longer see him as snide. I see him as disgruntled no. every once in a while, but not snide. And well informed. I see him as very yes. well informed. <laughs> yes. In comparison. <laughs> huh. It was very unfortunate for the Cornish that Henry had already raised an army of 8,000 men. Yes. Under the Lord Chamberlain, Lord Dobney. And they were just about to head up to Scotland. It was really bad timing, really. Yes. It's inevitable because they were demonstrating against that, that war. But 
And he was able to tell Dobney to hang on down south for a bit, sort out the Cornish bother, and then go up north. Yeah, well, he was closer to the Cornish problem than he was to the Scottish problem. Much closer, yeah. So it may I have just been geography that made that decision. Mm. Wait, had the Cornish by this time become violent or were they still a peaceful march? Or they were a peace, they, as far as I can make out, they were a peaceful march until they reached London and was met by an army. Right. Okay. Except for that one dismemberment. Mm. <laughs> Just an aside. You, <laughs> you dismember one provost. <laughs> one provost. And you get You're labeled for life. About it all the time. <laughs> Henry's plan was to let the Cornishmen reach London, where they're effectively be trapped. Because they'd be a long way from home, there'd be no escape, yeah. they'd be exhausted after the march, and they wouldn't be able to call on reinforcements since the Londoners, which we've heard, are terrified of them. Yes, and we don't know what kind of supply train they had. I would imagine they would have none. It's not like none, they're regular army people. Mm. I mean, you've got to feel sorry for them. Yeah. You? I mean, they've most Presumably, they've gone up there... Either with the intention of, of just speaking to somebody about this tax. Yes. All of them. Or maybe Flamank and Audley had different ideas, or maybe just Audley. Yes. But they've just been, they're walking into a trap. Yes, very much so. Mm. Peaceful protest, any protest was not okay. No. So... It's not like they would have the idea that they were protected like we would now. If you're doing a peaceful protest, you think you're going to be fine. Or at least you have you have the reasonable assumption that you would be able to do the protest and then just go home. But like we were saying earlier, it only takes one person to do something stupid. And next thing you know, you're in a riot. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, these priests, there were 50 priests. The clergy were taxed three times over. And we've come across this before in Henry's reign, that there was a lot of discontent amongst the clergy yes. against Henry. Well, they were supposed to be exempt from almost all these taxes. Mm. So, again, I'm entitled and you can't take the money. They were taxed once for the loan in anticipation of taxes, which sounds very <laughs> oh, Dudley and Empson, doesn't it? But it, it's a bit early. It's a bit early for Dudley and Empson, but it sounds like the sort of yes. thing they do. Yes. It? Once for their parliamentary taxes and once for a special clerical tax. So it oh. seems that they do have a point. Yeah. Now, a good question would be, okay, so you've been taxed based on the value of what you could provide. So they take that money. But then do they tax you on the reduced amount of what you ended up with? Or do they tax you again on your original amount of value? <laughs> then that really is I bet taxing. it's the original yeah, amount. Yeah, I bet anything it was. <laughs> yes, yes. You have, you have $100,000. We're just doing a round mm. number. So we're taxing yeah. you on the $100,000 of $10,000. You now have $90,000, but we're taxing you on the original amount of the $100,000. So that's another $10,000. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I'm, it'd be quite interesting to do Reginald Bray to find out just he is in our list. He is. he is in our list. I hope I don't get him. <laughs> it's yeah. your turn to have somebody that depressing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these poor people—they've marched all the way to London. It's a hell of a long way. Yes, and they're just face to face with a fully trained army of eight thousand men. 
plus another 17,000 who were retained to protect London. And they were just a few days from away from meeting these soldiers Goodness. at the Battle of Blackheath, so... otherwise known as the Battle of Deptford Bridge. And I set the song we'll hear at the end of the episode to a tune called Blackheath. Oh, how appropriate. Yes. When he heard the Cornish were at Farnham, Henry sent his wife and son Henry, who was about six, to the Tower of London for safety. Yes. On the 14th of June, news was received that the Cornish were now at Guildford. I mean, these names probably won't mean not, not to many of the people who are listening, but they're getting closer. Yes. Where they had... Why are they getting closer? I mean, it seems a very, bizarre, very convoluted way to get from Kent. They seem to have gone down and up. But once they get reached Guildford, there were a few small skirmishes between some of Dobney's spearmen and Michael Joseph's men. And it specifically says Michael Joseph, so I wonder if they were split into three groups of Joseph's and Flamanc's and Audley. It would make sense that way. Or, or it could be that Flamanc and Joseph's stuff was together and then Lord Audley was doing his own thing. Might have been. Because you would think that his men-at-arms would be snobs. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, they're snobs. It's just the, it's just the way of the way of the world. Then, it was. It? it was to us. It would be snobbish, but to them, it mm. would be status. It was reported that two Cornish spearmen were taken and brought before Lord Dobney, but we don't know what happened to them. But I suspect nothing good. Lord Dobney brought his army to St George's Park, where he was able to guard the city. Henry, with his army, camped the night around Henley-on-Thames. Yeah, Henry and his army. Oh, so Henry was there. Yes. The London Chronicle said, quote, The king was after seen in the field, and a brewing and a comforting of his people. Isn't that interesting? Because it wasn't in anything I read about Henry when we did the original episode on him. I suppose it's quite a minor part of it, I would think. His people were numbered 25,000 men. Wow. And I don't know if there was ever a plan for him, that Henry would actually fight, but just him being there meant that the Cornish were now fighting against the king. Yes, specifically. They're committing treason. Oh, that's mm. not good. There's no getting around it yet. They would have been better off to send a delegation. It wouldn't. Have, yeah. It would have been just as non-successful, but at least they wouldn't have died. There wouldn't have been a battle. But we saw something similar to this during the War of the Roses, wasn't it? When poor old um, Henry the Sixth was dragged out to head of yes. the army, <laughs> even, even though, though he was he in wasn't. no fit state to do so. Oh, we're camping now. This is lovely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> poor bloke. I know. He was only there so that the opposing soldiers would think twice about fighting and. Right. There must have been Cornish people who thought, whoa, I, did, I, I didn't sign up for this. No. Then we get to an odd story involving Edmund de la Pole, and I don't know if you came across this story. 
Edmund and George Neville, Lord Bergaveni. I didn't put these, for a start, I didn't put the name George Neville and Lord Bergaveni together. I thought they were two different people. And also, it didn't occur to me that Lord Bergaveni is from Abergaveni in Wales. But anyway. oh. When Edmund had been sent back to Henry by an extremely reluctant shipwrecked Philip the Fair, yes. he told, possibly under torture, of a strange event. On the 13th of June, 1497, a few days before the Battle of Blackheath, a royal messenger allegedly disturbed Edmund and Bergaveni in bed together in Edmund's residence at Ewell in Oxfordshire. Okay. Bergaveni hid under the covers. So it does imply oh, that... Oh, yes, that does make an implication. When the messenger had gone, he allegedly asked Edmund... And remember, all this was got from Edmund later. Right. I did not come across this story in all my research. It's amazing how you find stuff if you're looking at a completely different thing. Yes. That's why the beauty of the way we've set this up, really, because we come across all sorts of things. I didn't know about them, them taking his anvil. I didn't come across that in my, <laughs> my researches. So Bergaveni allegedly asked Edmund, if a man will do out, what will ye do now it is time? So... What did Bergaveni mean by this? Did he mean if Edmund was going to rebel, now would be the time yes. to do it, while Henry was weakened by the attacks from Perkin and Cornish uh, and the Cornish? Possibly, but Edmund's response implies something different, because he hid Bergaveni's shoes. Oh. <laughs> okay. You can't go anywhere I have your shoes? What? This is seen as proof that what was really happening was that Edmund thought that Bergaveni was going to fight with the Cornish rebels, implying that although Audley was the only noble to join the rebels, other, others might have been considering it. So Edmund hid his shoes while he rode off to join the king, because this at this time Edmund was in Henry's good books, sort of, okay. <laughs> as much as he ever was. And Lord Bergaveni was later prosecuted under the Act Forbidding Retaining, which we've seen before, mm -hmm. and find a whopping £70,650. That's insane. Yeah, he'd been accused of retaining previously, but he'd always got away with it. And when you say accused of retaining what? Retaining, uh, keeping um, people that could be used as a private army. Yes. Yeah. He had been accused of retaining previously. He'd always got away with it. So why was, why was he suddenly fined so heavily this time? And it's been assumed that Henry, hearing Edmund de la Pole's confession, realised that if Edmund hadn't hidden his shoes, Bergaveni may have been fighting against him at Blackheath and was punishing him. Mm -hmm. So, a strange little story. Well, I was just thinking of that because I've come across several notations that best friends or people who were particularly close would share a bed. And to us, yes, we... Yes, it's much more common in those days. Oh, it was hugely common. And even when we said, oh, he was hiding on the covers, that means that we were thinking that that would indicate some homosexual activity. But it still doesn't necessarily. It could be that Edmund was already under suspicion and Bergaveni could be trying not to be pulled under that same suspicion. Maybe, but just putting the sheet over your head is not, not going to help. Trick, no, but it, it doesn't help in any other way either. So it just seems, yeah. Yes, they must have had, one of them must have had tiny feet and the other one must have had big feet or something. Because otherwise, why didn't Bergaveni just take some of Edmund's shoes? Yes. It is a very strange story. It is and, really um, strange. Mm. 
people shared beds until really very recently, didn't they? I mean, yes, I'm thinking about Moby Dick. And at the beginning of Moby Dick, the narrator uh, stops at a, an inn. Yeah. And he, sh- he has to share the bed with... Well, he's a cannibal, actually. Okay. <laughs> it's only when he wakes up in the morning and turns over and thinks, whoa, <laughs> yes. is this who I've been sharing the bed with? Well, it, that it becomes an issue. Up until then, it, strangers shared beds in hotels. Yes, they did. All mm. the way through, you just you paid for for a bed and other people would be in it. Beds were expensive. Yes. And there was almost, I, I don't say, it's not really a rite of passage. It was the closer friends you were, the closer you became in everything. Sharing beds was one of those. So if you had a very close friend that came to your house, you didn't have spare beds. You didn't have spare guest rooms. That's true. That's not mm. something that existed. Beds were exceptionally expensive. So you were expected to share beds unless the person had a trundle bed. Uh, uh, mm. A trundle bed is like a low-slung mattress that's on casters that you can roll under the bed during the day mm. while you're using the room. But even then, those were expensive because they were made of wood. And wood back then was quite expensive, and you had to pay for the the time. That's why people left their beds in their wills to their favorite people in the in the house, or just their second best bed, or second best bed. Yeah, for William <laughs> Shakespeare's wife. Oh, but yeah. So sharing beds doesn't actually indicate anything at all, and we may be pulling too much out of that. No, I was just interested in the fact that. Well, mainly I was interested in the fact he hid his shoes. Yes. I mean, was that a foolproof plan? To stop? <laughs> I just think actually in Totalis Rankium, there's a character, isn't there, that wouldn't go out because he'd lost his hat. Yes. And he was shouting out of the window, bring us a hat. I can't yes, get out. Yes, I can't get out. I remember that. Mm, I can't remember who it was. Probably. You were always expected to present yourself as that rank is required. So losing your shoes... Maybe they didn't wear yeah. the same shoes because, well, no, because Edmund was still an earl. Mm. I don't know. I don't think we've got Bergavani in the box. I don't no. see how much inf- information we've got about him, whether we put him in or not. The Cornish were now in Sussex. Dobney was joined by Henry and his army, okay. which had been strengthened by a number of nobles and gentry from the nearby counties. The London Chronicles said, quote, And the same afternoon, my Lord Chamberlain, with other knights, accompanied by eight or ten thousand horsemen, came unto Hounslow Heath, where there was sent by the mayor certain carts with wine and victuals. And wine is expected because water wasn't good. <laughs> yes. It's just, I'm seriously surprised at the numbers of people involved. Hmm. For some reason, I had a lot fewer people. I haven't done much about Cornish Rebellion, so I I guess in my head, it was going to be fewer people, that fewer people would have joined up. And the reason I thought that was because how would they continue to get what they needed to survive after they had done the trip? Oh, and while they're doing it as well, especially if they're going peacefully and not demanding things from people. Yeah. I mean, how many people did they find that had enough to share with 15,000 people? Yes. The logistics are quite interesting, aren't they? Right, let's get these people killed then, shall we? (laughs) Oh, (laughs) jeez. 
It was at this time that a depressing event took place. A message was sent from Dobney, from some of Michael Joseph's army, asking him for a general pardon and offering to surrender Lord Audley and Michael Joseph up to the king. Mm. And we don't know why Flamanc wasn't included in this, oh. leading to some speculation that it was Flamanc who sent the message. Ah. But, that, I mean, that is pure speculation. Okay. But such was the panic as the Cornishmen realised the hopelessness of the predicament they were in, that it could have been anybody, really, just suddenly thinking, this isn't what I came yes. here for. How can we get out of yes, this? Yes, I, I didn't want a battle. It may be that it got around that Audley was only in it because of his support for Perkin. And we don't know Dobney's response, but since it was not a general pardon, we can assume that he rejected the offer. Mm -hmm. The historian A.L. Rouse, who writes a lot about Cornwall, said, quote, that they lay there all that night in great agony and variance, for some of them were minded to have come to the king and to have yielded themselves and put themselves fully at his mercy and grace. But the smith was of a contrary mind, unquote. Mm -hmm. So maybe that was the why the message was sent. The men wanted out, and... but Joseph was preventing it. Yeah, he says, no. No, you stay here. Henry let it be known that the battle would commence on the following Monday. But being superstitious by nature, he'd always seen Saturday as his lucky day. So he took the Cornish by surprise by attacking two days early. <laughs> which is cheating. Is it, it cheating? <laughs> is it cheating or is it just smart tactics? Tactic. I'm sure he'd see it as tactics. Yes. Henry had organised his army into three battles, as they're called, sort of battalions, I suppose. Okay. One to attack the hill from all sides, firstly towards London and to the rear. Okay. Oh, so they're surrounded, and, surrounded. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's just that's just one group. So that they, yeah, they surround the Cornish and block off their retreat. Okay. Lord Dobney would then attack the hill from the front. And John de Vere was there too, but I couldn't find out what he was to do. Henry and his army would wait in the background, ready to battle should the need arise. But in fact, it didn't arise. Of course not. <laughs> They're not fighting against, like, militarily trained men. They're fighting... No. They're funny. They must be terrified. People. It would be mm. terrifying, especially if that's not what you thought you were getting into. No, be terrifying enough being in an army yes. and just standing there opposite your opponents. But yeah, no. The army attacked the Cornish in the early morning of Saturday, June the seventeenth, fourteen ninety-seven, which was five hundred and twenty-five years ago tomorrow from the date at which we're recording. Ooh. And this was two days after Juan Borgia was murdered, incidentally. Oh, jeez. <laughs> he gets everywhere, doesn't he? Yes. But it's funny when you think about all these things happening at the, you know, pretty much at the same time. Yes. Henry's forces were equipped with proper weapons, horses and artillery. And the Cornish only had crude weapons like bows and arrows, billhooks, scythes and axes. But you can do a lot of damage with an axe, but it's not really... Not really enough, I'm is it? I'm wondering what kind of damage you can do with artillery. Like, it doesn't explode when it lands. Cause it, if it hits you, you know it. Yeah, but still, a cannonball, like, it's not huge. It's fantastic against structures, but I can't imagine mm. the Cornish had built structures <laughs> in this field. No. no. No, I don't know. I suppose they're intimidating yeah. as much as anything. Yeah. Could they shoot... 
lots of small shot. I know Leonardo invented something that could. <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> <laughs> I think for the rest of this podcast, we're going to say, well, Leonardo did. Yes. I wonder... I wonder if they did shoot smaller shot. Hmm. If anybody knows, let us know. We haven't done much on early artillery because this is very early artillery. Mm. Yes. Hmm. And I should imagine you could possibly do as much damage to yourself as to your opponent as the thing as blows explodes up in your face. In your face? Yes. Mm. That happened a lot. The bridge at Deptford was attacked by spearmen. And after a fierce battle, the Cornish were defeated there and the bridge was taken. With this gain, Dobney charged well ahead of his army, which proved to be foolhardy, since he found himself surrounded and taken by the rebels. Hmm. But for reasons no one has ever fathomed, they didn't kill him or take him prisoner. Instead, they just released him. So he promptly went off and started fighting again. Oh, maybe they were thinking if we give him up, this will end the battle because he'll go back and say, no, they're peaceful. Perhaps they thought that. Or maybe they thought they were merciful to Dobney. They were merciful back. to him, them. But they did not they, get that. They didn't <sighs> know what they were facing, really, did they? Man, I would be terrified because, okay, I know they say, a lot of people will say, well, if I was back then, I would do this. And I honestly would have marched with them because I have marched in real life here. But I, if I was all of a sudden marching now and discovering I was about to go into battle, I probably would run away. That would be my first yes. thing I'd do. No, I'm sorry. I am not a violent person. I had no intention of being violent. I am not staying here. I cannot imagine turning around and seeing that you're cut off and there's no way to flee. If that's it, how how would you mentally prepare for what was going to happen if that was not your intention? Because it takes a while for the brain to switch. It's it's the whole situation is really, really horrible. Yeah, really horrible. I'm just putting myself in their shoes and so just thinking. The, sorry for them. The terror, the absolute terror. Huh. Mm. The result of the Battle of Deptford Bridge, or Blackheath, was that Dobney's forces overcame the Cornish without difficulty. Oh, of course they did. The figures in the battle vary, though some place the losses of Dobney's forces within single figures, next to anything from 200 to 1,000 Cornishmen oh killed. Gosh. Seems hard to believe that a battle could have casualties in single figures, though. It does. Other sources that... say there were many casualties on both sides. Again, if that is true, if those first numbers are true, that's not a battle. That's just an all-out massacre with every so often mm. somebody got in the way of, of a billhook. That's not a battle. Francis Bacon said they were, with no difficulty, cut in pieces and put to flight. Oh, goodness. Flamanc and Lord Audley were captured on the battlefield. Joseph fled to Greenwich, but he was soon caught too. The London Chronicle said, quote, And this done, the king rode to the place where they had pitched their field, and at about two of the clock that afternoon he came over London Bridge, where at St Magnus Church the mayor, with his brethren in scarlet, received him, to whom he gave cheerful thanks for his good diligence for keeping and ordering the city, and for the plenteous victualling of his ost. And I don't know what ost means. Horse? Host? I wasn't quite sure. I don't know what ost is either. And the book I was reading didn't tell me. After which, thanksgiving, the same king, with his own sword, which was girt about him, he dubbed the mayor, 
Knight John Shah. And so from thence it rode unto Paulis, which I assume is St Paul's, and there offered. Because you do that after a battle, don't you? You take in, you, should, you hand over your standard or something, don't you? Yeah. For the blessed. And from thence he went to the tower where he lodged, unquote. I recognise the name Shah, S-H-A-A. So I checked. John Shah, the one, the, the mayor now, is half-brother to one Rolf Shah, who achieved fame when he preached a sermon in which he dropped the bombshell that Edward IV had been betrothed to Eleanor Butler and was therefore his marriage was to Elizabeth Woodfield was none and void. Yes, right. the children were bastards. Right. So that was, that was his brother-in-law. Huh. Now, this is, this is a weird thing. There's quite a lot of weird things in this, but this 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 one baffled me. Following the battle, what happened to the Cornish prisoners? The London Chronicle states that they were sold into slavery. Really? Quote, and forthwith was proclamation made through London that any man having any prisoner should bring forth the prisoner and his name by nine o'clock on Monday morning. Sorry, <laughs> by nine of the clock on Monday following. Sorry, I went all modern then. I don't know why. <laughs> And every which of them, so having prisoner or prisoners, should have his prisoner or prisoners restored or else competent reward for them. And after was diverse of the said prisoners sold, some for 12 pence and some for more, unquote. They, they actually, I thought slavery was legal in England. That's what I thought. I looked it up and it seems a bit hazy. I read that the slavery in England was abolished by a charter of emancipation in 1381. And that's the time of the Peasants' Revolt. So that was a concession made by Richard II. Yes. But apparently these concessions were later rescinded. Really? Hmm. So then Catherine probably did have slaves with her when she came to England. Quite possibly. But also, is it, was it normal for people just to catch people and hold them until they could get compensation for them? But if not, where were they put? I started thinking, what did you do with them? If you were an ordinary soldier, did did you really just take prisoners and walk off with them? Romans did. And where did, where did you put them while you did you carry on fighting? You know, you stand over there in your little. This is my little group here. Yeah, yeah. you stand over there. <laughs> I'll go back and get another one. Ah, oh, those are logistics. I have no idea how that would be mm. answered. Or was it more along the Roman lines where it was divvied up? After the battle. I don't know. Hmm. Right. We need a need an episode on this. Don't yes, we? we do. I'm not sure where we'd find the information, though. The other Cornishman Henry sent home with a promise of forgiveness. But that wouldn't be before a heavy fine was demanded. Right. The fines on everybody came to the sum of £14,700. Wow. And that is £1,500 more than his expenditure on this battle and the one that came later in the same year with Perkin Warbeck. So Henry's made a profit on this war. Oh, my goodness. So the people go <laughs> because they don't want to pay tax, and now they have to pay tax and fines. Yes. Yep. Do we know how many people in Cornwall starved the next year? No. Oh, darn it. Hmm. You always want to know how many people starve. <laughs> well, I do. It's just that yeah, we're talking about a single interesting battle. Interesting about but the ra has ramifications yeah. of what's happened. Yeah. There was certainly bad feeling, as we'll find out later. But And that bad feeling would last for a long time. Mm. 
And also Henry did send commissioners to Cornwall to check whether any of the been sent home were renowned troublemakers. Because he was still holding the power of punishment or forgiveness over them. Wow. But if you think, had they killed Lord Dobney when they had him prisoner, maybe the outcome would have been quite different. Right. They wouldn't have been forgiven and sent home. Hmm. Michael Joseph, Thomas Vermank and Lord Audley were brought before Henry and the council in the tower and were tried. Of course. And on the 26th of the month, Joseph and Vermank were taken to the Whitehall at Westminster where they received their judgment. Which was, they were guilty, apparently. Really? Guilty judgment. Yeah. Oh, I could not have Didn't figured see that, that one out. I thought for sure Henry was going to be merciful and said, oh, no, mm. I understand. It was a mistake. Yes. They were to be taken to Tyburn, to be hung, drawn and quartered. Imagine mm. hearing those words. Mm-mm. And this was carried out the very next day. Henry oh, was wasting no time. Goodness. You know, he wanted to get it done and dusted because he needed to get up to right. Fort Perky now. And it was reported that when Michael Joseph was dragged through the streets of London on a hurdle, he shouted, I shall have a name perpetual and a fame permanent and immortal. Very true. We're talking about him now. Yes, well done. Thomas Flamanck's last words were said to be, speak the truth and only then can you be free of your chains. Are you sure? Or did they just beg for it to stop? Uh, yeah, I say, I don't want to sound cynical, but I wondered if those were last, last, last words. Yes, no. They do seem a bit too good to be true. Yeah, or their last words were just, ah! Oh. Yes. <laughs> there was, yes, someone else who was hanged, drawn and quartered, um, Collingworth. He was the one who wrote the poem about the cat and the rat and Lovell the dog. Um, all live, live under a hog or something, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And he was hanged, drawn and quartered. And apparently he was taken down after being hanged. And they were just taking his guts out. And apparently he sat up, looked at it and said, Jesus, what more trouble? Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, anyway, this this is getting very dark. This yes, episode, it is. So yes, it is. If you're going to leave that in, we should put a little disclaimer at the beginning. There are certain sections that should be aware for children and people under the age of, what, 50? Well, yes, the next bit. <laughs> the next bit. After Joseph and Flamanc were hung drawn, hung, drawn and quartered, Henry was all for sending the body parts back to Cornwall as a warning. Yeah. And some sources, including the London Chronicle, said that Joseph's body was sent back to West, West Country. But others said that Henry was warned against it because it would stir up more resentment. Because it would be a martyr then. Well, he already is a martyr. Mm. Flamanc's quarters were displayed on Ludgate, Newgate, Cripplegate and Aldwychgate. And I thought, how would that be done? Were they nailed up or just dumped? Were there special receptacles there to put the body parts? They would often put them on spikes so they would hang up where everybody could see them. If they were too low to the ground, then they weren't enough of a deterrent. Hmm. So, So you'd have a leg on a spike? Yes, and from what I understand... In this time period and for a couple hundred years prior, those spikes were permanent. They weren't wooden spikes. They were metal spikes. And the body parts would rot and fall off. They wouldn't be claimed, really, unless there was one where somebody actually went and stole the head. The head of Thomas More apparently fell into his daughter's arms as she was walking underneath his spike. Yeah. She said something like, it's all too good to be true again. Yeah. She said something like, oh, if only I could cradle that head in my arms again and it fell off into her arms. Yeah, that sounds more like folktale. It certainly does. But people did steal them to give you them would. a proper you burial. You don't want to look at your 
family's rotting head. This is getting very dark. Yes, definitely disclaimer at the beginning. Yes. Parental discretion is required. This is how the London Chronicle described the beheading of Lord Audley. Oh, no. On a lighter note. <laughs> <laughs> he was excused hanging, drawing, and quartering due to his noble birth. Quote, this is interesting. It's another weird one. The same day, Lord Audley... Sorry, I said quote and then said <laughs> Now quote. <laughs> the same day, Lord Audley was brought to Westminster to receive his judgment and after being sentenced was taken to Newgate Prison to spend the night. The next morning at nine o'clock, dressed in armour of torn paper, he was taken to Tower Hill and beheaded, unquote. Armour of torn paper. Oh. Is that mocking him? I, I assumed it was a humiliation thing. Arthur Collins in the Peerage of England, 1709, said that he was transported to Tower Hill on display with his coat of arms painted on paper upside down and torn. Right, yeah, definitely humiliation. Hmm. Another source said, and there Wednesday in the morning about nine of the clock, drawn from the said jail of Newgate unto the Tower Hill with a coat of armour upon him of paper all torn. And there he's head stricken off, upon whose soul and all christen, God have mercy, amen. I wonder if that was something usual to do, because I haven't read that before. Paper, paper was expensive yes, it as was. well. <laughs> it was very expensive. That's I first thought. <laughs> that sounds like an expensive humiliation. Yeah. The heads of all three men were put on display on Pike Staffs on London Bridge. Yeah. Audley's trunk was buried at Blackfriars. Audley's trunk. You don't want to. You don't want your trunk. No. Sent off by itself, do you? No. His peerage was forfeited, but it was restored to his son in fifteen twelve. I wonder. Okay, I've I've gone off on another little rabbit hole in my head. We've just talked how we don't want your body dismembered, but I have you read do. in a bunch of wills that many people did, and what they would do is then send the pieces to specific churches to be interred in more churches than one. That way, they well, that's got. That's what we talked about in the human body episode wasn't it yeah and it speculated that the best policy would be mint to be minced and then handed out in tiny little pieces yeah so you get the most prayers mm. yeah and that was common that was quite common the more i'm reading about uh different things in death rolls and internment and wills i'm finding a few wills online a lot of them say i would like my heart interred at this parish mm. and i would like my head or my body interred over here and one person, and I'm sorry, I cannot remember who it was. It was a noble woman, had her specifically her right thumb sent to Frontevaux in France. I wonder why. She Maybe wanted a happy hitchhiking holiday or something. Well, if she wanted to go to Frontevaux because of the royalty that had been buried there. And who was it? Eleanor was buried in Frontevaux, I think. Oh, yeah. Mm. Eleanor of Aquitaine? Might have been. Yes. But why specifically her right thumb? And this is one of those things where I've read it, I remember thinking it was such an odd thing, and you pop it in your head, but you didn't take notes. <laughs> where did I read that again? Oh. Yes. But, yeah, such a... There's so many weird stories in this yeah. era. That's what makes history so fascinating. Yes, it does. And sometimes having something like that dangled in front of you and then 
not being able to find anything else. No, but it's when quite... they do say it, it makes sense. I, I understand because the more prayers you had, the less time you spent in purgatory. And you were and the closer you were to to the altar. Yes. The better your prayers. Yes. So get as much of you much of you buried in lots of different altars. Reduces your time in mm. purgatory. So it it would be something you would want to do. But then I started wondering, well, in the resurrection, they say your body has to be put in whole in order yes. to be recovered. So yes. when did... You see all the pictures of everyone climbing out of their graves. Well, they're not climbing out of the graves with no head. No. So what were they... Like, that would have been such a hard thing to think about unless they didn't consider that at that point. All they were thinking about was purgatory. I don't know. It's it's a contradiction. It's a hell of a thing to get over, isn't it, purgatory, purgatory for something that didn't ever never ever existed no it's not anywhere in the bible it didn't come no. from anybody except for the catholic church and who decided purgatory existed i don't know we're, we're way off track now but yes <laughs> well anyway I, th I think that's the that's the end of quartering and mincing and thank goodness and dismembering <laughs> this was the end of june and on the 12th of september perkin warbeck landed near land's end having sailed from ireland hiding in a barrel <laughs> and this is the moment right. where Henry apparently said, oh, look, we're being attacked by that Prince of Rascals. Right. But what amazed me was that following the crippling defeat at Blackheath and the execution of their leaders and the selling into slavery of their compatriots, Perkin was able to, to amass 3,000 Cornishmen, or 6,000, depending on the source, to march with him as far as Taunton. Why would you do it twice? <laughs> I don't know. Where, according to Bernard Andre, he was he told his troops that he had no money to pay them and then legged it under the cover of darkness off to Beulah. Wow. But you can imagine what, how the Cornish must have felt then. They've done it. They've heard all the stories about what happened in the first one. They might even be the same people. Yeah. And then they find they've been tricked. You would be annoyed, I would think. Yes, to put it mildly. <laughs> What happened after the two Cornish rebellions? One event was retaliation against Roger Wally, Wally, who was the servant of Lord Nanfan. Nanfan had been quite popular with the Cornish people, but he was sent abroad. I and love Roger that. Wally was. Landfan. Yeah. <laughs> He'd been left in charge. And so he was the first to warn the king. Now, I read that he was the first to warn the king about the Cornish uprising, but it implied to me that he was the first to warn him of Perkins' landing. But either way, it didn't make him very popular with the Cornish. No. This document is held at the National Archives at Kew, where Wally complains of a man called Tresini, quote, who was a great captain of the king's late great rebel and traitor, the Smith, and mind that the petitioner, that's Roger Wally, bore to the king of late on trust on the landing of Perkin Warbeck, riotously with certain servants of Lord Ludlow, the rebels assaulted the petitioner when he returned from church and entered his house and carried away his money and goods. And they subsequently going to the landing of Warbeck and accompanying him, for which Tresney forfeited. The petitioner requests for his service with the king in his victorious fields and journeys that he be granted the lands of Tresney that do not amount to more than six marks. So Tresney was on his way to meet Perkin Warbeck and he thought he would attack Roger Wiley oh. on the way. <laughs> Because Dresdenley had been with Perkin, his lands were forfeited. So Wally said to the king, 
well, I should have them because I've been attacked and my stuff was stolen. Right. So it just goes to show that there was violent retaliations to those in Cornwall who'd sided with the king. Oh, you'd surely expect, wouldn't you? Yeah. What do you call I mean, that? There must have been such. I'm trying to remember. People in France were imprisoned for it. What is that called? Oh, collaboration. Collaborators. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I don't know if they shaved their hair or anything, but they just beat them up and sort of nicked their stuff, apparently. Yeah. Following the Perkin Rebellion, Henry imposed heavy fines on Cornwall, causing yet more resentment. Of course. But by 1508, he had a change of heart, and he issued a charter of pardon and restored the Stannery Laws. Oh, that's on... It was about the time when he was so ill that he thought he was going to die. I was just about to ask you, was that when? (laughs) And that's when he had the change of heart about Dudley and Empson as well, wasn't it? And he he forgave quite a few people their debts, and then he got better and said, actually... I'm having that back. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Mm. Last little bit. While I was reading of the events in 1497 in the London Chronicle, I happened to glance over to the next page where I read, quote, This year reigned in this land a wonderful sickness called the Spanish pox, which continued upon many bodies two (laughs) years before they were fully healed, unquote. I thought, I cannot escape. I just, my eye just glanced over. I thought, oh, not more. (laughs) We need to find a squishy sound effect. (laughs) So that's that. So let's, shall we rate? uh, We're not doing Audley, we're just doing Flamank and Joseph. And fibbly. Intrigue. Okay. Well, we don't know. No, I was going to say it. As with so many of these things, if all three of them were in it, Flamank Joseph and Lord Audley, and they persuaded the Cornishmen to march to London, ostensibly to complain about the tax, but really to divert the King's forces from fighting Perkin up in Scotland, their amphibly rating would be sky high. Yes. They'd have tricked all those men. But they... And 69 women and some priests. Not the priests weren't men. But it, if it was only Audley who was in it for that reason, and Flamank and... Joseph were innocent stooges, then only Audley would get a high amphibly rating and we're not reviewing him. Yeah. I'm inclined to give Flamank and Joseph the benefit of the doubt and assume their motives were what they said they were. But there's not enough information either way. Yeah, because we're talking about intrigue and they weren't really intriguing. They were just blatantly rebelling. But in a, they were intending it to be peaceful. Yes. If that's the case, I mean, it would be intrigue if they tricked all those men into just being their own stooges to deflect I just, the army from Perkin. I just I d- don't see that. No, I don't get it. I don't feel that. I, but it's, it's just a feeling. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to give it a one. I don't think it actually occurred, but because if it had, they did not prepare their troop very well. They didn't provide them with swords or anything. No, but I suppose if you're just deflecting... I don't know, I suppose you'd want to kill as many of the soldiers as possible. If yeah. they knew the soldiers were coming, though. Well, they needed the soldiers That's the, to deflect them from going up to Perkin. If they all went up to Perkin and they left them to it down here, that would have defeated the object. Zero. I'm back to zero. You think zero? Yeah. I'm going to go for one just because there is that... Doubt that possibility i mean if it is the case then that is huge intrigue yeah yeah i'll give it a one as well that was my initial 
idea. But so intriguing that we just can't tell. Yeah. Which I suppose all the best intrigue is like that, isn't it? Yes. A mm -hmm. one for the possibility, so that's a total of two. Antiperistasis. Rise and fall. They fell ultimately. Well, it's not really relevant to them, except that when they started the uprising, they were in one piece, and by the end of it, they, they were in five, actually, weren't they? Yeah. <laughs> so they rose because they ended up with more pieces? <laughs> but one thing oh. that did occur to me is they were famous in their own time. No, In 1486, no one had heard of them. By 1487, certainly everyone in London had heard of them. Yes. And many places beyond. So I felt that, I know that could be Batim, thinking about actually in their own time. They came from being obscure, obscure Cornishmen to being really probably very famous. Yes. So I thought I would give them a two for that. But they haven't gone up or down, really, apart from being horribly, horribly dead. Well, that's just it, though. Um, they failed. I'm going to go with a three, just because ultimately they did die. Mm. So they did lose everything. Well, we've got martyrdom coming up right. as well. So. Right. No, you're right. A two. I'm going to agree two. with you again. So that's a four for antiparastasis. Martyrdom. They died. Top marks. <laughs> yes. They died for their cause. Yep. They died horribly for their cause. Yes, they did. And to make it even worse, it was a lost cause, a completely hopeless and tragic. Yes, it was. But, okay, and then I'm back again. They weren't able to flee. Did they want to die? Probably not. I'm specifically talking about those two. I mean... Yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm going to give them a nine. Okay. Just because when they first set out, it doesn't sound like they were intending to go that extreme with the violence. That's true. I mean, we are going to have to come across people who actually caught death yes. for their cause, aren't we? It would be a ten. Yes. Yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll go for nine. We are being horribly um, agree-y. Yes, we are today. <laughs> As an 18 for martyrdom. There's also, there's no evidence that they had lured the giant bolster with them <laughs> by putting up the image of Agnes. And I will tell you the story of bolster. And this is another so sad story. This is quite grim and sad and violent, this episode. <laughs> I do yes, apologise. <laughs> bolster was a legendary giant who lived near the cliffs at St Agnes. And I presume it wasn't called that at the time, since that would be quite a coincidence. He was rumoured to eat children, sheep, cattle and people at random. Oh, oh. I'm not sure why children aren't people, but there we go. Several local dignitaries had challenged Bolster to a fight to the death, but the giant overcame all who challenged him. And ate them. And ate them. <laughs> but then he fell in love. Oh, no. A beautiful young girl called Agnes stole his heart, and she was the one finally to vanquish the giant. Aww. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. When you say end it, she killed him? She asked him to fill a nearby hole in the cliff top with his blood to prove his love for her. They asked for that sort of thing in those days, didn't they? I mean, now, if somebody asked for someone to do that, they'd say, actually, yeah. let's call the whole thing off. And, and not only that, I think I need to take you to the hospital now. <laughs> <laughs> but she knew there was a crack in this hole that ran out to the sea. Bolster cut himself to fill the hole and died of blood loss. Oh. 
But there's a bolster day in Cornwall where they recreate this sort of story using giant puppets. Really? That's yeah. kind of cool. <laughs> but what a sad story. In a very Poor morbid bolster. way, that's kind of yes. cool. It's amazing how quickly you, you forgive him for eating all those children. That She tricked him in such a horrible way. <laughs> I have not forgotten him. <laughs> I just think that she's not so nice either. <laughs> or is it that? I would be happy that he died, so maybe she's not evil. She was very clever. Mm. And he was dumb. Giants often are, aren't they? Yeah, they're I not considered... Mean, I don't mean in real life. I mean, they're, they're set up as being blundery and... Yes. Anyway, he wasn't there. So had, they, had he been there, they might have won. <laughs> BT. Posterity. They are very famous. This is a plaque at Blackheath. Okay. In memory of Michael Joseph the Smith and Thomas Flamanck, leader of the Cornish who marched to London, they were defeated here and suffered execution at Tyburn, 17th of June, 1497. They shall have a name perpetual and fame permanent and immortal. That's erected by the London Cornish Association and the Cornish Gossard, which I presume is some sort of council. To this day, the 27th of June is celebrated Angoff Day, with events in Bodmin, St Cavern and London. So tomorrow you can get, but for us, not for you, because it'll be much later by the time this comes out. <laughs> but we could go and celebrate Angoff Day tomorrow. And who have we done so far that has their own day? Does John Cabot have his own day? I don't think so. No. He's got a shopping precinct. Yeah. Hmm. And apparently in Bodmin it's known as the Flamanc Celebrations. In 1997, a 500th anniversary of the rebellion, a commemorative march was held, retracing the route of the original march from St. Cavern to London. A statue depicting Angoff and Flamanc was unveiled at St. Cavern, and a memorial plaque was unveiled at Blackheath, as we've seen. Mm -hmm. Russell Pascoe composed the martyrdom of Angoff. Poor, poor um, uh, Flamanc doesn't seem to get such a look in as Angoff. I wonder why. For the, for, and it's, this, this play was performed at the Barbican. The Hollier Angoff Trophy is an annual award for the best publication in Cornwall. I'm not sure it's the best publication in Cornish, maybe. Angoff's name was later used by a Cornish nationalist organisation. Wow. Angoff is or was the name of a rock group. Yeah. Outside Cornwall, not sure how many people have heard of him. But inside, he, they are heroes. You know what? I think more people would hear of them than they realize. Because you've got um, the White Queen. They're mentioned in that, in both the TV show or movie and the books. Mm -hmm. They are in the shadow of the tower. They're in, uh, what is that TV movie? It wasn't that long ago. The Prince is in the Tower. Hmm. They're mentioned in there. I probably ought to watch more TV and, and films. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I Google them and I watch them now just to see if they hmm. align with the history. But uh, I think that's why I don't watch them because it annoys me so much. Oh, yeah, they're totally wrong all the time, especially Elizabeth, the clothing. Elizabeth and <laughs> Mary Queen of Scots meeting, I think. And then there was that, that one that was, it was done really badly. Uh, it was like was 1960s. Tower of London, The Innocent. Okay. It was done in the 1960s, but they are in there as well. And they're named. Right. It's not just the Cornish Rebellion. I th I'm pretty sure they're named in all of those. 
But I was going to give them an eight anyway, because they're so famous in Cornwall. Yeah, I'm going to give them a nine, actually. Mm. Hmm. Nine or I'm a ten. I'm going to give them an eight, because it's about time we changed to Disney Falls. But I'm almost... Because if people aren't interested in this period, they're not... They're not like Thomas Cromwell that everyone will have heard of, whether they're interested in or not. But Well, it's not just this time period, though, because I remember one of the things that I was reading was just politics and they were brought up. So was the the Peasants' Rebellion of Richard II, but, or, mm. yeah, Richard II. So if you're interested in history or politics it, of Britain, it would come up. I'm going with a nine just because they are still appearing okay. in movies. Okay, I'll go with an eight because I'm not sure how famous. If you were to stop someone on the street and ask them about them, I don't think many people would they know their names. Possibly not. Mm. Hmm. I'm still going to stick with okay. my nine. So okay. that's seventeen for Bettine. Flaunt a bleeding flaunt. Do we have any pictures? Um, I forgot to send it to actually, but if you Google the statue at St. Cavern, it's all we've got. Uh, it's a commemorative statue, which must be a plus, but there's no way it looks anything like them, which must be a minus. <laughs> so we have no idea if that's a likeness. I don't see how it could be. I can't imagine there are Oh, well, especially since they're so angular. And it was, it was put up in the 1990s anyway, so he's got his anvil. He's got his foot on the anvil, so he's... Oh, maybe the uh, that's from the anvil legend. And Flamank is holding a, sto- a document. document, so it shows that he's a lawyer. I mean, there's not been many who've got their own statues. No, cabot, there aren't. Had several. So I was going to go straight down the middle of the five, because got, they've got the statue, but it doesn't look like them. Well, it'd be a lucky, lucky guess if they if it did. I'm going to drop that down to a three, actually. Okay. Um, because it's not, it definitely wouldn't be a likeness. And yeah, I'm going to go down to four actually because yes, they've got a statue, but it's as far as things like symbolism. And yeah, there's no symbolism there either. It's mm. just two statues that were put yeah, up much four, later. Okay. Ooh, that's going to be one of our few decimalized ones. Yeah, three point five. So that gives them a total score of 44.5. Not bad. Not bad. Now the big question. The big question. Are they too delicious or what? No. No? Mm. I was going for a definite yes. Were you? Yes. All right, they didn't succeed. But I don't think that matters. They had a valid cause and they fought for it against the odds. They're incredibly brave. They paid a terrible price for what they did. The Cornish still revere them. True. By making them delicious, however little information we might have on them in particular, I thought we were giving delicious to all those people that were that marched with them from Cornwall. Yeah, that is something. They were able to influence that many people. Hmm. Hmm. As soon as I started reading about them, I thought I'd really... I'm not, not, I'm not trying to move your ideas, but I thought I'd really like to give them the delicious because they did the right thing, I think. Yeah. As long as, as long as they weren't intriguing, and we'll just assume they weren't for the time being. Yeah. And they were attending to do it peacefully, which is probably one of the few peaceful mm. marches. That... If, we, if we ignore the little blip in the middle. 
at Taunton. Yeah. And I don't think poor Prophet Provost Perrin got to ignore the little blip in the middle, but there we go. You know what? I, I agree. They are tutorlicious. They rose up in a way that most people wouldn't have. They were able to influence that many people to join them, which had to have meant that they were charismatic enough. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm... I agree. I'm going to change my mind Yay. and go with Tutorlicious. Yes. Excellent. Yay. Brilliant. Yeah. We have not, not many of them, so it's no. nice that we've got yeah. our first commoners. Very true. They are our first commoners. Mm. Yeah, well, what an excellent. Interesting. Oh, for my next one now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Get the cat proof bag. Oh, <laughs> I wanted this one. Oh, is it her? It's Maximilian, oh. the Holy Roman Emperor. Oh. He's been behind the scenes and off to the side on a number of episodes, and I'm wondering, oh, I wonder how deluded he's going to be in reality. We've been through this so many times that we approach the research with this <laughs> idea of what they're going to be like, yeah. and they come out completely different. Yeah, my biggest surprise was Polydor Virgil. I really, really, really didn't want to know him, and then I ended up liking him by the end. Oh, right. Well, excellent. Yeah. Good. I'm pleased about that. That'll be... That'll tie up quite a few bits, I think. And it'll be interesting to see exactly how he managed to get so much money out of Henry without actually giving Henry anything he wanted. Yeah. Well, obviously, he gave tips to his son on that one as well. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I'm glad about that. Yeah. There are a few, a few still in the box that I think, oh, I hope I don't get that one. But anyway. Oh, really? <laughs> I just think it was funny because... Uh, who was I talking to? I was chatting with somebody on, on Facebook and they were saying, you know what? We thought, they thought that we were manipulating the system until I got Polydor Virgil and they listened to my reaction. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Otherwise I would have stacked the odds and given that to Lucy. <laughs> no, we're not manipulating it. Nope. We've got, well, we've got to do them all at some point, so we might as well do Yeah, very true. Stick with it. Very true got a couple of parochial announcements that we forgot at the beginning yes that you've reminded of since one is that we had a joint uh, podcast with battle royale and ranking 76 which was good fun yes and that was to celebrate battle royale's first birthday yes and for those that don't know battle royale is ranking and rating the french monarchs Right from the beginning all the way up. I think they started with, did they start with Charlotte? No, they would have started before then because they did the mayors. So they started before. Yeah, mm. so basically before it was even a thing. And then ranking 76, the American West, is a bit more like us in that they're picking a specific time period and ranking a whole bunch of people from that time period in the American mm. West, which is really cool. It is. I didn't really think I would be interested in the American West particularly, but... Fascinating. Mm -hmm. Fascinating bunch of... They've got the same problem as us, really, that a lot of the people they're covering are just truly awful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there are a few that are psychopaths. <laughs> yes. 
Yes, yeah, so you can you can listen to that now on the Battle Royale podcast. And we'll probably put it out on our podcast at a later date so that we don't all come out at the same time. We do have a couple of people to thank for joining us on Patreon. Uh, Sheena Nichols, thank you. She's joined us. Um, we know her quite well through Twitter and Facebook, which is awesome. Done, but okay. I'm not sure. And then we've got Jane Elizabeth, who joined us. And Michelle, I'm sorry, I'm not sure if this is how you pronounce your name, Blom. But thank you very much. We really appreciate all your help for keeping this podcast going. Mm, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. That is the end of our episode on Michael and Goff, also known as Michael Joseph and Thomas Flamenc and the Cornish Rebellion. We hope you've enjoyed it and will join us for the next episode on Louis XII of France. Thank you for listening. You can find details of the podcast and contact us on In the meantime, you take my life when you do take the means whereby I live. Oh, it is excellent to have a giant's strength, but it is tyrannous to use it like a giant. Dawellis gone. Dawellis gone. Goodbye. <laughs> And a king who takes the pith They had to take a stand Six thousand men, all miners of tin Bravado without, but terror within Not to march for their rights would surely be a sin They had to take a stand When they reached Taunton it got a little Dismembered him. Why? Why? We'll never know, but it surely stopped him working. When they reached Wells, it got a little weird. Lord Audley turned up and he volunteered. Why? Why? We'll never know how much.
thousand men marched on to London town. They faced Lord Daubney, but were they down? Of course they were, they were beaten hands down. Those brave men took a stand.